0: Welcome back to Take a Closer Look. I'm your host, Guinevere Lee. Thank you for your patience waiting for this episode. Convention season is crazy busy, so I don't have as much free time to produce these episodes as I did over winter. Sorry! Now, before we get into the novel itself, I got an interesting tweet in my discussion about LGBT characters in fantasy novels. At Luchman said... If writing LGB characters is where your muse leads you, I'm all for it. I'm a cis male, so I write cis because that's what's authentic for me. I prefer authenticity over all else. Write a great character, and I don't care who they love. Characters in a novel should look and feel like friends and neighbors. I don't write main characters who are LGBT because I don't know what that feels like. But there are often characters who are because they're part of life. I wanted to start with this because it brought up an interesting point that I think keeps a lot of cis writers from avoiding LGBT characters. Even though a cis writer has no problem writing a character of the opposite sex, for some reason a lot of writers worry that they can't authentically portray LGBT characters. It really says something about our society when we think of LGBT people as so other that a cisgendered person is afraid to portray them in books. I realize this probably comes more from not wanting to offend the LGBT community, but it's silly. Writers need to be able to portray characters who have nothing to do with them personally, and I feel like if they honestly can't portray an LGBT person, for whatever reason, then maybe they should try to read more books which include these characters. All this brings us to the Prism Knights. These books are written by Jay Kiyakis, who identifies with the LGBT community. What I feel readers will notice when they pick up these books, though, is that the characters' genders and sexualities are not the things that define them. They are defined by personal trauma, regret, and their will to live, just like any good character. And with that, let's take a look at Prism Knights number one, representing the color red in the rainbow flag, Kokoliko. Once again, in summary... The dedication on this book is what really grabbed me. Any book that opens with a dedication reading, For my love, who encourages my self-indulgence for evil lesbians, is certainly something worth checking out. Before the proper narration begins, we are given a quote. Monsters aren't what she thought they would be. And so begins part one. We are introduced to our main character, Fern, who has just defeated some monsters. She stands outside a tower. She's a treasure hunter, and she's come to loot she climbs the tower trying to gain entrance before a sudden downpour washes her away she finds a balcony but as she climbs inside she's attacked by a sword-wielding princess the plate is dull though and the princess doesn't fight with much skill fern is able to fend her off easily enough the princess who introduced herself mid-fight as the lost princess cordelia turns out to be playing fern as soon as fern missteps cordelia takes advantage of the situation and manages to disarm fern with her knife to fern's throat She unexpectedly says, This is it, Miss Knight. You are my new suitor. Obviously, Fern has passed her test, and Cordelia kisses her. At first, Fern protests that she's the one in control here, but the two fall on each other, making love while the storm rages on outside. The day after, Fern lies in bed, rather impressed with Cordelia, and surprised that Cordelia was there at all, since she had been expecting a witch in this tower. Cordelia says there was a witch, but she left the tower a long time ago. Apparently Cordelia spends her days in the towers fighting off suitors, burying them under the floor. In fact, they're standing on their bodies even now. Fern wants to know her story, so Cordelia begins. Flashback. As a young woman, Cordelia had a troubled relationship with her brother. He emotionally abused her, leading her to snap and attack him, murdering him in his sleep. As punishment, the king and queen give their daughter to a witch to be kept locked in a tower far away. However, the princess seduces the witch, though they never kiss. Instead of keeping her as a prisoner, they work together. The witch makes the princess armor and a sword, and spreads the rumor of a lost princess in need of a brave knight to rescue her. With her long locks of hair, the princess entices the princes and knights, allowing them to climb her hair and enter the tower, where she would fight them to the death. They would hide their bodies under the floorboards, their blood leaking into the tower, each body adding to the witch's power. Then one day Cordelia says the witch went out to spread more rumors of the lost princess and simply never returned. Cordelia acts depressed about all of this and Fern wants to comfort her. Her response is to ask Cordelia if she wants to start a war. Cordelia asks what she has in mind. We then get a look into Fern's past. She has just been in a fight with a man, resulting in his death. She is discovered by a blacksmith but rather than turn her in, he decides to make her a suit of armor. Fern pays for this by stealing wallets from her victims. Though it's left ambiguous who these victims are. Is Fern a serial killer? An avenger? Your average mugger? We don't know, except that she is capable of doing terrible things. With her armor in hand, Fern then begins to study fighting as a knight, both from observation and dueling. Part 2. Some time has passed. Cordelia wears her suit of armor now. Her armor is described as being black as death and ash, though in my mind that reads as being gray. The two are wounded, but alive, after an intense battle, whether through an official ceremony or just their dedication to one another. They are married now and call each other wife. As they patch each other up, it's quite clear they enjoy this wanton destruction. Although it's clear they've started a war, it's not clear who they started it with. They simply travel from town to town, wiping them out. They aren't satisfied yet, and decide to take down another. It becomes obvious that they mean to murder another town, and that they aren't killing knights or soldiers, but the small folk. As they terrorize people, their legend spreads, and they are known as the Ghost Knights. At the next town, Fern is annoyed that the people aren't acting afraid of her or Cordelia, but after Cordelia begins to slaughter the innocents around them, the man Fern is holding at swordpoint begs for his life, only to have Fern run his heart through. The next section is one of the more disturbing passages. Fern muses over how easy it is to destroy a village full of people who either have no weapons or don't know how to use them. Fern takes particular pleasure in searching for people hiding, ferreting them out by following the smell of their fear and panic. Years go by with them doing this, and eventually Fern grows mildly bored with murdering innocents. Instead, she prefers it when the men fight back, and then she can beat them down, enjoying them beg for their lives as she murders them. After wiping out a village, they often sit on a roof of one of the taller buildings, watching the sun rise after the night of bloodshed, then go to a bedroom and spend the day making love. After leaving one slaughtered village, Fern and Cordelia realize they're being followed. Sometimes men would try to fight them, but both are surprised to see it's a woman wearing armor, carrying a shield and sword, and who is trailing behind them. She says that she's actually been following them for a while. Cordelia is instantly condescending to the young woman and as Fern approaches her, the woman attacks, they fight, and Fern can see her own determination mirrored in this other woman's eyes. Fern asks what her name is, and she says Agatha Roe. Roe slips up, and Fern grabs her head, throwing her to the ground and pushing her face into the mud, telling Roe not to follow them. She leaves the would-be knight behind, ignores Cordelia's confusion, and they leave. Part 3. Roe waits until the ghost knights are gone before pulling herself out of the mud feeling shame and frustration that she wasn't good enough to take out the ghostites. In a dense old forest, Fern and Cordelia make a fire. Fern says that she should take it easy for a bit, that they've pushed their luck enough. Rather than argue, Cordelia agrees. They go to find some shelter for the night, but it's clear that Cordelia is troubled by her wife not killing Agatha, and now wants to stop fighting altogether for a while. They find sheltered in an abandoned hut and make passionate love. While Cordelia curls up, fast asleep next to her wife, Fern looks outside. Judging from the clouds, a storm will soon be upon them. A few weeks have passed, and with the warming weather, Fern is actually looking forward to some rain. More than that, she's restless, wanting to go out and shed some blood. Cordelia isn't impressed with the idea of fighting in the rain. But doesn't say no to her wife. During a lightning storm, they emerge from the forest and find a waiting village. They race towards it, falling on the defensive villagers and slaughtering them en masse. Sometime after the destruction, in the heat of early summer, they relax in a field of poppies. Cordelia is dancing, and Fern is just enjoying the sight of her. She loves to watch Cordelia dance, and enjoys her beauty as well as her ability to fight and kill so many. They come to another village, wiping out another town of innocents. Cordelia had the villagers lined up on their knees, cackling with amusement as she murders them one by one. Fern is annoyed because none of the villagers are cowering in fear. She cannot stand the idea that they think they're better than she is. She joins the killing. A few try to break free, and Fern throws one into the mud, her boot on his chest as he begs for mercy. Before Fern can finish him off, Someone shouts at her to stop. Fern turns to Ro, the young knight who tried to fight them before. The man begs Ro to save him, reaching out to her, and Fern murders him, stabbing him through the head. Fern and Ro fight. Ro gives it everything she has, but still Fern manages to beat her down. On the ground, Ro pleads for Fern to not kill her. In response, Fern throws a knife at her head, but the knife just misses, leaving Ro with a small cut on her cheek. Fern lectures her about how she's a knight and knights do not beg for their lives. They should accept defeat or death with grace. Fern leaves her, once again refusing to kill the young knight. Cordelia is confused by her wife's actions, even asking her why she left one alive. They leave, and Fern reassures her wife that she knows what she's doing. Later, as they make a fire in the forest, Cordelia demands to know what Fern is doing. Fern replies that she has a debt to repay, but Cordelia doesn't understand why that would lead Fern to spare this woman's life twice, and so Fern tells her wife a story. After becoming a knight, Fern is attacked in the forest by bandits. They shoot arrows at her from the treetops, and Fern is unable to fight them off. Wounded and surrounded, Fern is doomed, until suddenly the bandits stop dropping dead out of the trees. Fern is shocked, and then a young man emerges from the trees, introducing himself as Roe. Cordelia realizes that Fern feels conflicted about killing Roe, since she saved her life. They go to sleep, and Fern contemplates what to do. When she hears someone coming, she wakes up Cordelia just as their attacker comes close. Fern kills the attacker, and they listen to the forest if there are more coming. The attackers jump down from the trees and emerge from the shadows. Fern and Cordelia kill them all, but one manages to escape. They are about to give chase, when they hear someone cut the man down. They move towards the sound and come face to face with Ro. Ro gets down on her knees, holding out her sword. She says that when she asked Fern not to kill her before, she hadn't been able to finish. Please don't kill me. Please teach me, she manages to say now. We end with the beginning quote finally finishing. Monsters weren't what she thought they would be, because she was one of them. Whew, let's do some analysis! All of the Prism Knights novels are based on fairy tales. For those who didn't catch the reference, Cordelia is a princess locked in a tower, watched over by a witch, and uses her long hair to let knights climb up into her tower which is covered in hair, page 23. She's very much based on Rapunzel. This is clearly not the first adaptation of Rapunzel that's changed the relationship with the princess and the witch. In many adaptations, like in Disney's Tangled or the Broadway version Into the Woods, they play with the mother-daughter aspect of their relationship. This is the first version I've seen that turned that into a Stockholm-esque romance. It's unfortunate that we don't get to see it, and only have Cordelia's version of events. We don't know why the witch really left, or where she ended up. Cordelia is pretty dismissive about what the witch's fate might have actually been, though. Even though she claimed to be in love with the witch, it seems strange that once they leave the tower, she never suggests looking for the witch. Did the witch die? Did Cordelia have something to do with her disappearance? Maybe wanting to break out of the tower? These are answers that Kyakas may plan to give us in the future, but for now it remains a mystery. The connection between color and theme is probably the strongest in the first book. The story is told from the POV of the series' main villains, the Ghost Knights. They are brutal murderers, slaughtering village after village, with blood blooming like poppies. Page 55. The word for the poppy flower in French is coquelicot. Just like in Flanders Fields by John McCrae, we see a stark connection between the blood-red flower and death. While McCrae mourned it, though, the ghost knights revel in it, the poppy motif is recurring throughout the novel. My favorite use of the symbol has to be when Cordelia dances in the poppy field, as though she's dancing on the bodies of her victims. The weather plays a big role in the novella as well. When Fern first climbs the tower, a terrible thunderstorm nearly washes her away and then rages throughout the night. The meeting between Fern and Cordelia will have a disastrous effect. The storm signifies a massive shift in their lives. The weather comes up again later. After years of wanton death, it becomes clear to Fern that something is going to change again soon when she realizes it's going to rain, and another storm will soon be upon them. The change is coming. The meeting with Roe. The effects this meeting will have on the ghost nights is unclear, because we don't see what happens after Roe asks to be taught. Could it lead to jealousy between Fern and Cordelia? Could there be a terrible fallout from this? Or could Roe have a calming effect on them? Whatever the case, it's obvious that a massive change has come. And of course, at the end of the story, we see a sky like blood. Page 125, foreshadowing that this final meeting will probably do more harm than good. Fern is an interesting character. Despite her murderous actions, she carries herself with the dignity and nobility one might expect from a knight. Why else repay a debt and save Rose's life if she didn't have a conscience? Cordelia is depicted as being blood hungry, while Fern simply follows and does her bidding willingly. Her name and a line from the book gives a clue about what kind of person Fern is. While they walk through the forest, Ferns all around them. It's remarked that the ferns bled into a continuous foliage with the trees. Page 111. Ferns blend in, and so does she. From her past, we learn about how easily she adapts to her situation, becoming a knight simply because she has armor, going on a killing spree simply because she has someone to fight for. It seems clear that Fern adapts to whoever comes into her life. It's interesting to think what might have happened if Roe had managed to find Fern before Fern found Cordelia and joined forces with her. And likewise, it's interesting to think what effect someone like Roe will end up having on Fern in the future. Let's talk about Roe for a minute. I want to make it clear that I didn't make a mistake in the summary. Agatha Roe, as she is introduced, is a man in the flashback when she saves Fern's life. I wanted to point this out because the novella does not, and I think that's really interesting. Like I said at the beginning of the episode, and one of the things that makes this series so great, is that the characters' sexualities and gender identities do not drive the narrative. The fact that Ro went through a gender transition does not matter any more than her hair color does. Her character is not defined by it. Rather, she is defined by her desire to become a knight. Foreshadowing and Connection As I mentioned before, this isn't the last we've seen from the Ghost Knights. They will come back, though from here on we'll be getting the perspectives of the people who live in fear of them. Despite the fact that there's no real order one needs to read the novellas in, the fact remains that this was the first of the series Jay Kiyakis wrote. It's interesting to start a series from the POV of the villains, and then go forward and see the damage and heartbreak they've caused. There's also the matter of the witch. While I think it's unlikely we'll see anything else about her in the future, that Cordelia probably murdered her, as this episode goes live, only three of the planned six novellas have been written. Maybe we'll learn more about her in the future. I also hope to learn more about Roe. Either way, I'm very much looking forward to the next novella in the Prism Knight series. In conclusion... Well, that's all for this episode. Thank you so much for joining me. Next episode which will be out on Canada Day, July 1st, we'll take a look at number 5 in the Prism Nights series, Sapphire. All Prism Nights novellas can be purchased at That's jkiakas.com. That's j-k-i-a-k-a-s dot com. Or at Jay's Etsy shop, Windy Wallflower. That's windy Wallflower. I want to hear from you. What are your thoughts about the Prism Nights and the themes we discussed in this episode? Did you like seeing the POV of two murderous lesbians? Or would you have preferred a more traditional fantasy story following the heroes? Tell me your thoughts about Coquelicot or Sapphire. I always include listener feedback at the beginning of every episode. You can get a hold of me on Facebook or Twitter at Guinevere Lee. That's at G-U-E-N-E-V-E-R-E-L-E-E. You can also find me under the same username, Guinevere Lee, on Reddit. I post discussion topics on Reddit, but send me a tweet if you just want to share your thoughts. Check back July 1st for the next episode of Take a Closer Book, looking at Prism Knights number 5, Sapphire. Bye for now! You don't question why you're running through a forest bamboo. You don't give yourself time to think. You run. You scream. You cry. You run and run and run, and you hope the man chasing you with a bow and arrow doesn't kill you. Lida and the Samurai is a tale of a modern girl in ancient Japan, only available on com. That's C-H-A-N-N-I-L-L-O dot com. Lita, a young woman who moved to Japan to escape her abusive family, is slowly adjusting to her new life. She's learning Japanese, making friends, and enjoying the summer festivals. On the day of the famous Tanabata Festival, she finds a small shrine. But when she steps out of the shrine, she steps into Edo-era Japan. Trapped 400 years in Japan's past, what follows is half fantasy, half historical fiction. Is her coming here an accident? Or does it have some Something to do with the sudden appearance of European ships off the coast. Lita must discover how she ended up in this situation and how she can get back home, or if she even wants to go back. Lita and the Samurai updates bi weekly on Mondays. You can read the first chapter for free on chanillo.com. Once again, that's C H A N N I L L O.com. We were the first, and we will be the last. From Morgan James' fiction comes the exciting new historical fantasy Orope, the White Snake, by Guinevere Lee. The whispers of the gods have seen the vision, the gods destroying the world in a flood because the old ways have been corrupted and forgotten. Three are chosen, Tersh, Kareth, and Shadi, to go out and warn the world. The gods must be appeased. In Orope, the White Snake, Tersh must leave her children and travel to Matawe, the kingdom in the mountains. She also must care for Kareth, and keep him out of trouble. Kareth, told since birth that he is destined for greatness, has been expecting this moment. Certain that he is ready, he quickly discovers that his confidence and curiosity have a tendency to lead him into dangerous situations. Shadi finds himself traveling alone to find the people of the jungle, the Petsuhalpa. The jungle seems like a paradise until he discovers the darker rituals practiced within. Samaki is a merchant who returns to Mahat to find his home destroyed, his father dead, and no one to buy his expensive cargo, with his first mate Chewhart, the merchant struggles to move forward after his entire world has been upended. The stories of these four travelers intersect and entwine with each other as they move towards their destinations. Guided by visions, the whispers must use their wits to survive in these strange new lands that would rather use them as political pawns than listen to their warnings. Available in paperback, digital, and audio wherever books are sold. To learn more about Guinevere Lee and her writing, visit guineverelee.com. G-U-E-N-E-V-E r-e-l-e-e dot com and thank you for listening music provided by bensound.com